choir's coming. We'll take just a few moments for transition. Our children's church will meet over here to my left, and you're right at the Welcome Center, so we'll be giving a few minutes for all of those things. And while they're making the transition, if you want to go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, that's where we'll begin uh, reading here in just a few moments. Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you would find verse 1, we're going to read the first couple of verses of this chapter as we begin talking to you in this series that I'm calling Family Matters. Family Matters. I'm grateful to God to be a part of a family, aren't you? Amen. I'm grateful to God to be a part of God's family. The children of God, people redeemed, washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. So as we talk about these things, we will talk about of course, our physical earthly families, but we'll also talk about our family as a local body of believers here, Cleveland County, Alabama, 155 Almond Street. This body of believers here at the Heflin Baptist Church will talk about both, I'm sure, throughout this time. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. If you found your place physically able, stand with me. Honor and reverence to the reading of God's word. Of course, the scripture's always on the screens too if you want to use that to follow along. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to read verses 1 and 2. Here's what the word of God says. It says, Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land where you are crossing over to possess that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his commandments <clears throat> which I commend you, you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word today. Father, help us to take your word make known its unsearchable truths. Father, may you change lives, may you change families, may you change churches, may you change communities, may you change a nation today for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you and you be seated. You know, I believe there's no greater source of comfort for a child today than to know that they are a member of a loving caring family. I believe that those of you who work with children whether in through your, your profession or in your neighborhoods, communities or whatever you might do, volunteer work if you're around children you know the value of a loving and caring family. You also know the heartache of those who do not have that wonderful privilege. Many children in today's world are forced to grow up without a family to call their own. They often grow into fearful and insecure adults due to instability that takes place in those formidable years of childhood. On the other hand, children who grow up in solid families have been given a precious gift from God. Now, I just want to tell you today, if you're a son or a daughter and you have a mom and daddy and grandma and grandpa that loves Jesus and walks with God, you've been given a gift, friend, a real gift. And I believe that. Children who are raised with parents who uh, walk with God and teach them how to do that before other people and demonstrate for them a life that is belonging to Jesus 
is a great benefit, a great blessing and a gift to you as a child. Regardless of your circumstances, whether you are in your childhood today, whether you're just recently removed from that, adolescence, adulthood, or whether you're full grown, and maybe even in the fourth quarter, regardless of your circumstances of childhood, we can all agree of the benefits of being a part of a loving family. Let's talk about your family for just a moment. You gotta ask yourself some questions when you evaluate scripturally and biblically and spiritually the health and the state of our families, we have to ask ourselves some very important questions. We have to ask ourselves these same goals on the scale of our spiritual family, this local church. We have to ask ourselves, what are our spiritual goals? What spiritual goals do we have for ourselves? What spiritual goals do we have for those in our home? What spiritual goals do we have for this body of believers? We also have to ask, in what ways are we seeking to be used by the Lord? I've reminded you many times, and I'm sure other great men of God have done the same, that you are a gifted individual. You have been blessed and gifted by a holy God with specific spiritual gifts that are to be used for his glory, his honor, and you're to do that with all your heart. So you gotta ask yourself, how am I seeking and how am I making myself available to be used by the Lord? There's another question you gotta ask. Is in your home, how often do you discuss God, the Bible, or other spiritual matters with your family? I can remember so many times raising my daughters and I'm so grateful for them. And like I've told you many times, they're not perfect. They're like their daddy. They're far from perfect. But I can remember how many times we talked about so many things at the dinner table pertaining to what they were dealing with at that time or maybe in our living room or maybe they'd come in late, late in the evening before bedtime and sit on the edge of the bed just talk to me and their mother about things and how now in their adult life they're saying, I remember when we talked about this and I remember when we talked about that and it's a great blessing. But you do need to discuss the importance of a relationship with God, the importance of the word of God guiding your life. You need to discuss spiritual matters among your children in your home. And then there's one other question you gotta ask is what kind of family do we desire to be before God and before our fellow man? You know, there's a lot of pretenders today. There's a lot of people that will pretend today to be a follower of Jesus. There are a lot of people that will go to church and they will say the church words and they will do the church thing. But I want you to know there's a big difference between doing those things on Sunday and being a follower of Jesus in integrity in the days between Sundays. We gotta ask ourselves, how do we desire to be before God and those around us? Tom Blackaby, who wrote the book, The Family That God Uses, which is a wonderful resource for you, he said this, he said, every society down through the ages has families recognized by, by all as families of influence. Some are extremely wealthy and powerful. Some have provided employment to thousands for generations and some have a long list of members involved in politics or crime, which you could use interchangeably. But anyhow, he said this, others are a, of a royal lineage or influence through academics, art, entertainment, or social reform. He said these families can pass on their influence, their, excuse me, they can pass, often pass on their influence, wealth, 
or power to future generations. Their influence can extend decades, if not centuries. Yet none have had more of an impact than those that God has used for his purpose and his glory. What Blackaby is saying is the greatest impact that you can have on future generations is to be used by God for his purpose and his glory. Of all the people who have ever lived, those have the greatest impact. See, I truly believe every Christian family, I believe every Christian family truly desires to be used by God at some level, but are we willing to be used by God to our fullest potential? Sometimes we stop short of that. We have to ask ourselves, are we willing to live in total and reckless abandon so that the things that give us joy will be the things that bring joy to the heart of God. We have to ask ourselves, will we allow these things that break God's heart to be the things of the world that break our hearts? And we must ask ourselves, do we really want to leave this world only reaching a portion of our potential? I don't believe anybody really wants to do that, but I believe it happens more than we realize. So over the next few weeks, I'm going to focus my heart and lead you as a church to focus our hearts together on what we believe God's word has to say about the purpose, the priority, and the potentials of our families. I told you I'm calling this series Family Matters. Today we'll talk about the family altar. We'll move next week, Lord willing, to the family atmosphere. We'll talk the third week, Lord willing, about the family's appetite. And then finally, in the end of the series, Lord willing, we'll talk about the family's alliances. All four of these messages, I believe, are based on the words that God gave Moses as he instructed God's people on the importance of raising a family that can conduct themselves as followers of God and influence future generations by fleshing out a godly testimony. So as we look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 and talk about the family altar, there's a couple of things we've got to know in the beginning. Moses was God's man. He was fulfilling God's plan. He was being used by God to lead his people out of bondage from Egypt. They were headed toward a place called Canaan. The scripture says it was a land where milk and honey flows. See, that phrase often describes the richness and the fruitfulness of the land they were headed to. Milk was a staple and honey was a luxury. So when those words are used, Moses wanted the Israelites to know that God was able to provide for all their needs regardless of where they were. This section of the book of Deuteronomy, beginning in chapter 6, verse 1, deals with the importance of each family, focusing on the ultimate destination and to maintain an unfailing devotion to God and their family. I like something, it's on my desk somewhere, I read it regularly, Zig Ziglar said this, your present situation isn't your final destination. Isn't that good to know today? I mean, and that's what Moses kept in front of these people. He wanted them to have unfailing devotion to God and their families and he challenges them right there in those first few verses some words that are just literally mind-boggling. He taught them 
that they must observe God's statutes now and continue doing so once they entered the promised land. He taught them to fear the Lord their God. He taught them that they were to keep all God's commandments and statutes. And he taught them that they would teach their sons and grandsons all the days of their life. That's in verse 2. I want you to hold to it. We're going to come back to that in just a little bit. He was teaching them that no one has the ability to fulfill this kind of obligation without spending some time at the family altar. When we study the history and significance of altars in Scripture, we understand that the altar is a place of sacrifice. It's where we come to sacrifice ourselves for God's glory. In Genesis chapter 8, Noah built an altar to sacrifice every clean animal and every clean bird after his family came out of the ark. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down when he encountered the prophets of Baal. In the Old Testament tabernacle, the brazen altar was the first stop for the priest as they sacrificed the animals on the Day of Atonement. At the altar, we sacrifice something precious. At the altar, something has to die. In the Old Testament, something physical had to die. In the New Testament, you must present yourself to God willing to die to yourself that you might live for his glory. I believe that. So what does this say about the family altar? It causes us to ask ourselves some more questions. How is the prayer ministry in our homes? Do we acknowledge God before meals like we should? Do we pray at other times other than mealtime? Do we pray together for our family's needs? Fathers, I want to say this before I dive in real deep today. I shared with you last week that you are the priest of your home. You are responsible for the spiritual temperature at your house. Warren Wiersbe used to say we can make a choice. We can be a thermometer or we can be a thermostat. Thermometers don't do anything with the temperature except tell you how hot or cold it is. They register temperature, but they have no way of regulating temperature. I want you to hear me today. You must commit that you will not just be the thermometer and let come what may and live and let live. You must commit before God and your family to be the thermostat and as God sets the temperature in your heart, you set your family to that same temperature. And you say, hey, you know what, preacher? They're going to church stuff, it just ain't for me. I hear that. I've heard my dad say this many times over the years. And if you do, I'm not here to beat you up. I'm here to lift you up. I'm not here to throw a rock at you to hurt you. I'm here to throw a rope to you to help you. But I've heard dads tell me a lot, that, pre that going to church stuff just ain't for me. All them hypocrites up there, I just can't do it. But I want you to know, they'll all say this. But I'll tell you what, preacher, I don't stop my wife from going, and I tell her, you know what, you need to make sure them kids are there. Amen? you probably heard that before, but I want you to hear me today. If you're here in this building or watching by way of Internet, if that is your attitude toward the house of God, please hear me. I want to help you. It's not important, it's, I mean, it's not enough to just send your children to church. It's not really just enough to take them to church. It is your responsibility to lead them to church. There's a big difference, and I want you to understand that. Lead your family to love God, lead your family to serve God, and lead them to do that through the local church. It really does matter. 
Amen? All right, let's dive in. Y'all ready to get started? <laughs> All right, let's dive in. Here's what we find. First, they've already put it on the screen for you. When we talk about the family altar in America today, it's the only country I've ever lived in. Maybe you've lived in others. I know Miss Jeannie has. She lived in Saudi Arabia. She knows. There's different things around the world, but there's one thing common. Before the people of God, there's an often a neglect of the family altar. Now, I want to give you some examples on the neglect, and when we talked about the necessity here in a little bit, I'm going to take you back to verse 2. So I hadn't forgot it, so don't think I have. When you think about the neglect of the family altar, I want to give you some examples, and Carrie's put those up for us. And I want to talk through these guys just real quick. You know all these stories. Y'all are Bible scholars, right? Yes, right, okay. No, there's really, I like what Jerry Vine says. There's no such thing as a Bible scholar. We're all just Bible students. Whether you're at the pulpit or the pew, we're all students, and we're learning together, we're moving forward, okay? When you think about David from the Old Testament, a man who pursued the heart of God, it seems unfathomable that he could have made all the blunders that he did, right? When you hear all these things about him and you read about his youth and you read how God took him from a shepherd boy to a king, anointed him king before Saul ever died, and you see all these things that God had done for him and how God helped him and used him to deliver a nation as just an old runt shepherd boy, the least of the least, you would think this guy right here is going to walk with God no matter what happens. But David is a wonderful example of somebody who neglected the altar. See, what happened with David was, is David was supposed to be out with his men at the time of war. There's a whole message in that. But instead of being with his men, he just hung back at the palace. First of all, he was out of place. Amen? And not only was he out of place, but he was getting lazy. When he walked out onto the top of his palace and he saw Bathsheba bathing at a distance and there's a real problem with why he was even there. He wasn't supposed to be there and the Bible said that he walked out on the top and he saw her at eventide. It meant and it tells us that David had been in the bed all day. Amen? Amen? Not only was he out of place, he was out of position, he had gotten lazy, he walked out and he saw her, and look here, men, we all know men are prone to be visually tempted, I understand that, that's just the way we're wired, but when he saw her, if he would have turned from her and went on about what he was supposed to have been doing, we wouldn't read the story that we read about what happened with him and Bathsheba, but what happened was, is he looked again, and he kept looking and he liked what he saw and Satan used that as an opportunity to take down a king. Now hear me. If Satan doesn't mind coming after kings, what makes you think he won't come after you? Amen? So David is in the wrong place. He's not walking with God. He's not in fellowship with God. He's got his eyes and his mind everywhere else where it's supposed to be. It was neglect of the altar of God. Well, you talk about Samson, you know his story. Book of Judges, Samson, he just liked to play games. I know some guys like that. They just like to flirt a little bit. They just like to, you know, say little things and, Guys, I want to tell you right now, you better be really careful in this technological world. You better be very careful. But old Samson, 
He began to play games with Delilah. Uh, he, he began to think it was a joke. Oh, tell me where your strength lies, Samson. And he would make up these tales and she would do all these different things to try to bind him and, and wake him up and say, the Philistines are upon you. And he would break those bounds or those reeds or the grass or whatever. And then he would you know, kill them all. And once again, they would find out that he had lied to her. But eventually, look here, boys. Satan does not care how long it takes to get you. One of the most respected Christian leaders in America, if not the world, went home to be with the Lord a few years ago. One of the greatest apologists of our time. After his death, it was revealed that he had been living a double life and has caused great damage to the kingdom of God even after he's gone. Don't think that just because you're older or that maybe after your life is over that what decisions you make will not have a tremendous impact on those who come behind you. Guys, I want to tell you, Samson continued to play games, so ultimately the game was over. Ultimately, he stayed longer than he wanted to stay and it cost him more than he ever wanted to pay. It's what sin does. Then ultimately it cost him not only his strength, it cost him his eyesight, it cost him his life. Friend, I want you to hear me. Samson was another example of one who neglected the altar of God. We could talk about Joshua. <laughs> we could talk about him. No, David was one who thought he didn't need God. Samson was one who was lured away from God, but Joshua was one who failed to consult with God. Sometimes we are most vulnerable for a major fall when we are coming off the heels of a great victory. Joshua just won a great victory at Jericho. Wouldn't you say it was pretty awesome? They shouted, the walls came down, they had victory. I'd say it's pretty awesome. But right after that, he experiences a major defeat at a little old bitty place called Ai. How did this happen? Well, when you see what happened after they lost, he rent his clothes and he realized what his problem was is before he went to battle, he did not consult with God to get a battle plan. Friend, hear me today. Your family is worth you going to the altar of God every day for. Your family is worth you making whatever sacrifice it needs. Your family is worth your devotion and your allegiance. So is your spiritual family. Because whatever you do out here not only affects the family you live with, it affects the family you worship with. That's tough, isn't it? It's hard to say, but it's the truth. And we never need to forget it. But what about Joash? I want to park here for a minute. We read about Joash. <laughs> he became king when he was seven years old. That's pretty awesome. Seven years old, the Bible says in 2 Chronicles 24, 2, that Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Listen, here's the key words. All the days of Jehoiada the priest. Those are real key words. He repaired the house of the Lord. He realized that Jehoiada did not require the Levites to get the collection from the people that they should, so he had to do something to fix the house of God. He made a chest, set it outside the house of God, and he commanded the people to bring their money, put it in the chest to repair the house of the Lord. 
You say, preacher, did they bring anything? Oh, yeah. I can imagine me out here saying, hey, I tell you what, we're going to put a chest out here outside the church. Y'all just bring it in, and we're going to take care of the house of the Lord. Well, here's what they did. The Bible says that they brought it in abundance. They didn't give God what was left over. They gave God the first fruit. When they, and then when the, uh, the, the chest got full, here's what happened. They just emptied it, set it back out there. <laughs> they set it back out there again. And guess what happened? Filled up again. It's a pretty good plan. So Joash and Jehoiada, here's what they did. They took the money that they collected from the people and they repaired the house of the Lord and they gave the money to those who did the work of restoring the house of God. The scripture says this. They restored the house of God, listen, I love this, to its original condition and they reinforced it. That meant they made it better than it was in the beginning. Well, what did they do with what was left over? Well, they took the rest of the money. They made the articles for serving, articles of the house of God for offerings. And in verse 14b of that same chapter, here's what happened. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord. Wait a minute, here's those key words again. Continually all the days of Jehoiada. Wait a minute, they're not just talking about Joash, the king, they're talking about the priest. But what happened after Jehoiada died? Well, if you've got your Bible right there, you can flip a couple of pages over to 2 Chronicles. Why don't you do a, take a little road trip with me? 2 Chronicles. And why don't you look at chapter 24 for a second. You, you need to see this. If all these good things were happening as long as Jehoiada was living, what happened once he died? Well, 2 Chronicles chapter 24 in verse 16. Well, let's back up to verse 15. Jehoiada grew old and was full of days and he died. He was 130 years old when he died. They buried him in the city of David among the kings. There's another important one, among the kings. Because he had done good in Israel both toward God and his house. Now after the death of Jehoiada, the leaders of Judah came and bowed down to the king and the king listened to them. This is another critical point. Therefore they left the house of the Lord of, the, of, their, of God, the, excuse me, Lord God of their fathers and served wooden images and idols and wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem because of their trespass. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. Wait a minute. God sent a preacher to try to get their attention so they turned back to him. What happened? And they testified against them because they would not listen. The Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, who stood before the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he also has forsaken you. So they conspired against him and the command of the king that they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of God. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him but killed his son and as he died he said the Lord look on it and repay Joash has got some problems doesn't he Joash was doing well as long as Jehoiada was alive but the moment he died 
They started showing up. Said, we don't like the way this is going. We, we want things to go back the other way. And as they began to drift away from where God had them, God sent prophets in there to try to get their attention. There are so many men of God today that are preaching from pulpits, that are preaching on street corners, that are preaching on internet and everything else, trying to get America to wake up and listen to God and turn back to God. But yet so many refuse to listen. It ought to get our attention, church. But when it came time to remember the kindness of God through Jehoiada, Joash forgot because he had done God in with the rich and the powerful and all that and he forgot the kindness. But you'll notice, you can read a few verses down. Look at verse 23. So it happened in the spring of the year, the army of, the Syria, came, army of Syria came up against him, destroyed the leaders and the people from among all the people and sent all their spoil the king of Damascus. For the army of the Syrians came with a small company of men, army, uh, a very excuse, small company of men, but the Lord delivered a great army into their hand because they had forsaken the Lord their God, their fathers, so they executed judgment against Joash. Look at verse 25. When they had withdrawn from him, for they had severely wounded him. Look here, he's still clinging to life. His own servants conspired against him because of the blood of the sons of Jehoiada, the priest. You know what? Joash might have forgot what Jehoiada did for him. These old boys didn't. No, no, they remembered and they killed him on his bed. So he died. And look here, here's key. And they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. Wait a minute. Jehoiada the priest was buried in a place of prominence. And here's the king. It's not because of what he did. See, all of these men that I just shared with you about these examples, they neglected the altar of God because they got so busy with other stuff that they forgot how much they needed God's blessing on them. Oh, some of the sweetest moments of worship I have sometimes are just private moments with myself, me and God, sometimes just walking through this worship center, sometimes just by myself outside of this place. But there are so many times in the past 18 months that I've walked through this worship center and I've just sang, Holy Spirit, rain down. Holy Spirit, rain down. Oh, comforter and friend, how we need your touch again. And I've just poured my heart out to God. And I said, God, I don't know what to do. And God, nobody knows exactly what to do. But I'm confident that you brought us safe thus far. I'm confident that your grace will lead us home and don't let me ever get so comfortable or confident in any ability that I have that I would ever forget that I can't even walk without you holding me. God help us today. Here's what happened. They began to fill their life with non-essentials. They began to live off the temporary preservatives of this life and not the never-ending blessing that flows from God's fountain. Let me move to the necessity of the altar right quick and I'm done. The necessity. Let's back up to Deuteronomy 6 again. And I want you to walk through just a few of these things. The necessity of the family altar. Well, here's a few things it does. One, it provides spiritual discipline. Look right there in your Bible. I mean, you can see it just as clear <clears throat> as I can. They were taught to observe God's statutes and they were, content, they were told to continue to do so once they entered the promised land. 
spiritual disciplines from God. That's what they were told to do. He said you would do these things and you will keep doing them once you get there. Sometimes here's what happens. We pray for God to get us out of the ditch, but once he gets us out of the ditch, we quit doing what he said while we were in the ditch. Amen? Sometimes we're like them. We're in a spiritual Egypt. Sometimes we feel like we're in spiritual bondage. Sometimes we feel like we're just in a mess and we'll call out to God and we will cry out to God and we should, we should. Don't ever, don't, don't ever fail to call out to him from the ditch just because you didn't before. But when you're in the ditch, you're calling out and you're saying, oh God, help me. Get me out of this ditch. And then when he does, you're like, good, I'm good now. I don't need him anymore. Now, I know none of you would say that and I know none of you would really intentionally do that but our human nature is to be real prideful and to be real self-reliant and self-sufficient. But what we were learning here in Deuteronomy 6 is what we must learn even today is the spiritual discipline helps us to remember that we must keep God's statutes when we're in bondage like Daniel did. They sent him to Babylon. You know what he kept doing? He just kept being God's man no matter where he was geographically. And in the rest of his days, he spent in bondage, but he kept walking with God. But what he's saying right here to these people in Moses' days, he's saying, even when you get to Canaan, you keep doing what you're doing now. It provides spiritual discipline. There's a second thing, it promotes the fear of God. He said in verse two, that you may fear the Lord your God. If I could sum up America's greatest problem today, I'm not talking about the unbelieving world. I'm talking about the American church. I believe if I could sum it up into just a few words, what is our greatest issue and our greatest problem that we need to lay on altars before God is that we have lost the fear of God. We've lost it. We think of fear, and that word fear we taught in the Old Testament means a reverential awe and respect of the holiness of God. We don't enthrone him as holy anymore. The things that used to be holy are now just commonplace. It's dangerous. But I'm here to tell you today, the family altar not only provides spiritual discipline, it promotes the fear of God. It reminds you and the members of your family, we are not in charge. Third thing it does, it produces loyalty loyalty that you would fear the Lord your God that you would keep all his statutes and his commandments loyalty I appreciate loyal friends don't you have you ever sometimes I'm loyal to a default y'all ever been, sometimes I have I, I don't know about you have you ever been real loyal sometimes and wish maybe you hadn't to be <laughs> I'm sure we've all got burned in situations past. That's just part of living. If we're not careful, we'll get burned. And you'll do what I did as a younger Christian, even as a younger pastor. You get burned by people and you'll start building walls. You'll start putting up barriers. And you'll start distancing yourself. And you'll start, you know, retreating. And you'll find yourself missing out on what God is trying to teach you through that so you can be a better servant. But what you're doing is trying to self-protect yourself when you don't need to protect yourself. You need to trust God to do that for you. And sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it's difficult. 
but it's for our good. But I want you to know the family altar will produce loyalty. It'll be very important. And I can't tell you from a church standpoint, I believe and I know a lot of folks say, well, you know, we're in a pandemic. I know I've been respectful of that. But I still believe that the altar is a place to sacrifice. I still believe it's good for people to gather. You know, I don't know about y'all. I was in the midst of 101,000 of my closest friends yesterday. There's only one stadium you can do that in this state, amen? 101,000 of my closest friends. Do you know what? There was no social distancing taking place. None. So that causes me to lose a little bit of this, you know, I'm protecting myself when I see that. <laughs> I mean, because I, I tell you what, if I'm going to isolate from something, and I understand in the beginning, we didn't know, if I'm going to isolate from something as much as I love Alabama football, I would not go to Brighton any stadium if I couldn't go to church, amen? I mean, I'm just telling you right now, coming to church matters more to me than that. Amen, preacher, that's right. It matters more to me than that. I'll be honest with you. I look more forward to gathering with y'all each week than anything I do. I pray every day for this hour and a half that we have every Sunday morning. I really do. I pray much for it because I believe it's critical. I believe it's important. And I still believe, and I want to tell you, churches that make good use of the altar and churches that gather together and call on God together, you know what it does? It produces loyalty. Amen? Because when somebody's got down there in the gutter, when you've been in the gutter and they've got down there in an altar with you and prayed with you through that situation and seen God raise you up from the gutter and put you back on solid ground, I tell you what, you don't forget people like that. You don't forget those who were with you when you were hurting and when you were burdened and when you didn't know what to do. You don't forget those that were with you when things were toughest. It produces loyalty when there's a family all. And there's one other thing. It prepares disciples. <laughs> what do he say to do? Teach them to your sons and grandsons all the days of your life. Did you hear that? All right, peepaws, pawpaws, pops, pawpaws. I'm not with you yet. Some of you have been a pawpaw for a long time. Some of you are new pawpaw. My friend Terry, he's new pawpaw. Y'all pretty proud of that baby. I mean, okay, okay. I mean you're new pawpaws, right? And, and ain't nothing more precious. Everybody tells me that there's a reason they call them grand. Is that true? Okay. And I, I pray someday, I'm in no hurry to get there, but I'm just saying, I pray someday that I'm able to experience what you do. Because they tell me, I don't know about this, they tell me, but men, that when you get a grand boy, you like him a whole lot more than you did your boy. <laughs> there must be some truth to that. <laughs> now I want to tell you right now, and if I get a granddaughter, y'all know how much I love my girls, and I mean, I, I, I mean, they ain't nothing. They ain't a river I wouldn't try to cross, a valley so deep, a river so wide, a mountain so high. But if I ever experience what it means to have a granddaughter that I love more than my daughters, I'm telling you, this is going to be a crazy world, amen. But here's the greatest thing you pass on to them. God is telling Moses, what I'm telling you, if you don't teach it to anybody, you teach it to them boys and them grandboys that belong to you. That right, Marty? Hey, he got rich. Some people say, I don't like it when the preacher gets kind of personal. He makes me uncomfortable. Look here. 
God's not worried about our comfort. He was not worried about whether he hurt Moses' feelings. He was saying, Moses, go tell the people, hear me, hear me. Them boys and grandboys that belong to you, if you don't pass on the influence of the gospel and a relationship with God to anybody else, make sure pass it to them. God help us. God help us. See, I believe the family's prayer life is essential. It's as essential as the very air that we breathe. And I believe that if we don't get refreshed and renewed in our communication with God as individuals and a church, that we can literally dry up. We need to spend time with God, friends. And if we don't, here's what we do. When we neglect time with God and we don't fulfill the necessity of the family altar, both personally and corporately as families and a church, we open the door wide and we give Satan more opportunities to attack us. I don't know about y'all, but I'm really in the business of trying to close the gaps to where his access is very limited if not cut off altogether. Amen? But I'm believing today that it's not the case across the board. Let me leave you with this. In Genesis 22, Abraham's got his precious boy. A boy that he waited a hundred years for. And God said, I want you to take him that mountain and I want you to put him on that altar and I want you to sacrifice him. I mean, it sounds absurd, don't it? But it was all part of the test. You know the story. Abraham got all the way there. Laid Isaac on the altar. Isaac said, I see the wood. I see everything in place for the sacrifice, but where is the lamb? And Abraham said, God himself will provide a lamb. As he laid him on the altar, the Bible says he drew back the knife. And it wasn't to the point of no return until God said, Abraham. Can you imagine that that was probably the sweetest voice he'd ever heard in his life? Because he was at the point where his heart was breaking. Did he love God most or what God gave him most? son no harm for there is a lamb caught in the thicket by its horns and that old lamb right there is going to take his place do you know what God was doing he was wanting to see if Abraham was willing to take his most precious gift and prove his loyalty and love for God above everything else here's the good I'm grateful. Marty, you don't have to do that. This is your boy and you stuck with him, all right? All right? All right? We don't have to do that. But we all got stuff that we love more than we do God. 
you know what I believe is going to be the great test of the church between now and when the Lord calls us home which could be any minute praise God but between now and then I really believe the great test is are we going to take the things most precious to us and we place them on an altar and say God I love you more than I do this stuff I mean watching my girls walk out of the house for the last time knowing that I was going to come to church on a Sunday and I wasn't going to be their pastor anymore and I turned them over to God knows what to be their pastor I don't know I'm kidding I'm kidding they got great pastors but as they walked away I had to say to God these words God you're teaching me to love you even more than them and no I've not got them on an altar and I'm not having to say goodbye forever yeah. I said, but you're teaching me that my loyalty to you better be more than my loyalty to anybody or anything. So here's the invitation today, church. What do we need to put on the altar today? I mean, you may have something personally. It's just between you and God. That's fine. But if you got something that you love more than him that needs to go on that altar, that needs to be sacrificed today, as a church, do, is there something we're trusting? Because I'll tell you this, our resources, God's good to us. Our resources could be gone tomorrow. Did y'all know that? We could be. I mean, in a matter of a short time, any church could be bankrupt or broke. We, we, have, we, we are not dependent on each other. We're dependent on the storehouse of heaven through God's people to continue what we're doing. We could be out of resources quickly. Are we trusting that? Are we trusting that the church has been here since you know, 1882 and, and this building right here has been here since 51 and the back building since 67? And are, are, we, are we trusting that it's always been here and it always will be? Or are we saying, God, unless you build the house, we talked about that last week, they that labor, labor in vain. Maybe, this is not a maybe, surely, there are some things that we must put on an altar today and say, God, I love you more than this. Pray with me. Father, in Jesus' name, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you for how it speaks to my heart and challenges me above all I could ever ask or think Father your word is so powerful you tell us so clearly how we can live in ways that bring you great honor great glory that appoint an unbelieving world to you and that's our goal Father today as I've told you this week I pour my life out to you pour my heart out to you I plead with you God help us to put ourselves on these altars help us to sacrifice our wants help us to sacrifice what makes us happy for what makes us more like you 
Oh God, I don't know the knees in this room today and I'll never pretend that I do. But God, I know that your word teaches us there's absolutely nothing hidden from you. And God, I pray for every man, woman, boy, or girl in this building today or those watching by way of internet. God, I pray that every person somewhere, somehow this day will make themselves an altar and they will place themselves on that altar and say, God, I sacrifice this one life that you've given me to be lived for you. I will not live for myself. I will not live for what brings me glory. I will live for what honors you and honors you alone. And Father, that we would recognize the influence of ourselves beyond this generation and beyond the generation behind us. God, that our influence could carry on for many to come. Father, I pray today great glory will be brought to you through the sacrifices that will be made and the lives that can be changed right here at this invitation. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's stand our feet all across the house. In just a minute, Marty's going to lead us. I want you to hear me. If God has spoken to your heart about anything today that you need to get right with God, please don't just try to put it off and get out yonder and maybe it goes away. Realize that you are special, that God, the sovereign God of the universe has spoken to you. And he's calling you to get things right with him. Church family, what is it we need to put on that altar? Maybe that's a question all of us need to answer. And maybe we need to, by faith today, maybe we need to put some feet on our faith. We need to find us some places, both sides, and we just need to call out to God fix us. Marty, you lead us. Do as God leads you. The Savior is waiting to enter your heart. Why don't you let him come in? There's nothing in this world to keep you alive.
Lord Jesus for speaking to us today, would you? Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. You can be seated. Our ushers are coming now to receive our morning tithes and offerings. And as they're coming, I encourage you as always to be faithful. As we said earlier, you always give God the first fruits and not the leftovers. I mean, he's holy. And he said in his word that the tithe is holy unto the Lord. And I just don't believe that. I practice that personally. And I want to encourage you to do the same. Uh, you'll never know the blessing of being a follower of Jesus till you understand the blessing of giving. I used to hear Johnny Hunt say all the time, you're never more like Jesus than when you're giving. And that's so true in any area of your life. So I want to encourage you to be faithful and let's continue to touch the world. Let's continue to be faithful and lead in the area of missions and ministry. Let's touch the world beginning at our front door, be a blessing to our community and beyond. The faithfulness of God's people has a whole lot to do with our ability to do that. So let's be faithful in giving today. Let's join our hearts together and ask God's blessings on our giving. Just catch a couple of things before we go out today. I do want to tell you how much I appreciate your kind attention today, and I trust you know that I talk about the things we talk about because we really want to help you and encourage you in your walk with God. If you're yet to know Jesus and don't know Him as Savior, please know we're here to help you. If God has spoken to your heart about anything, I always go out front. Please feel free. Once you come by, I'll help you. If not, there are others around here that'd be glad to help you with anything you need. Don't forget this announcement made earlier. Pay close attention to those. If you uh, turn your slip in, if to reserve some copies of devotional, thank you for doing that. If you missed the plate, you can always go by the welcome center and drop it off there. We'll do that for you. Appreciate you doing that, and just know 
that I'm looking forward to a great week. I know many of you got some activities planned for fall break and stuff. I encourage you to be careful and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I want to encourage you to, to uh, always keep God, number one. Put yourself on that altar every morning. There's a couple of things. I don't Y'all probably have rituals that you go. I don't know if they're really rituals or whatever, just little routines for your morning. And there's a couple of things that I do most every morning, if not every morning. And one is at the at the table before I leave for my quiet time, leave the house, I always take my finger and kind of draw a circle around my feet. And I say, God, I want you to keep the boy inside this circle right with you today. Because, God, if I can stay right with you, I can help others. And I want to make sure that, and I want you to know that I pray that for y'all. And before you get here today, yeah, I just tell you, I pray for you. Yeah. I ask God to help you and I ask God to speak to you and I ask God to use you because you matter. As the old preacher used to tell me, he said, boy, there's gold in them there pews. Amen? And it's not about what you do for me and it's not about gold as we consider financial. It's about spiritual giftedness is in these pews right here. And there is an opportunity. We've, just, we've only just begun to see what God is going to do. And let's pray for continue pray for our schools while they're out and all of our young folks that are out this week. Pray for them to be safe. I just think about things, you know, we used to do during school breaks and we used to build ramps that were not OSHA approved, right? And things like that. And, and a skateboard, I, I, that was not my friend. But anyhow, so just, just pray for that and just know that you're loved. I love you very, very much and there's nothing you can do to stop me. I mean that, okay? So let's stand together. Marty's going to sing us out when you're ready. Whoa, victory.